religious communities are the ones that are the most effective overall from what I can see from my research are providing large scale humanitarian relief. And I suspect what we will find out is that they are worth way more than anyone could possibly have conceived before, that without them, society would be an awful lot poorer emotionally, sociologically and economically. It's not often that you hear people describe religious bodies in such a way. But Dr. Juliette Chevalier-Watts, a senior lecturer and doctor of law at the University of Waikato in New Zealand, is not your average atheist. Juliette specialises in charity and trust law, and despite having no religious belief herself, has recently fallen down the rabbit hole of religious law. Her latest project seeks to uncover the financial and sociological value that religions play in our societies. And despite many calling for the removal of laws which protect religious bodies, her research is revealing that in fact, modern societies need religion just as much as ever. In this episode, Juliet joins me to discuss her work, why governments shouldn't be so quick to dismiss religious institutions, and how those who do have a religious belief can highlight the good work that their religions provide. My name is Maddie Sterling and this is Choosing Faith, a podcast where we normally interview members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and explore what it's really like to live a life of faith across Australia and New Zealand. Please excuse my cracked voice in this episode. At the time of recording, I'd barely regained my voice after a nasty illness. I'm so excited to be talking to our wonderful guest today. I'm joined by Dr. Juliette Chevalier-Watts from Hamilton, New Zealand. Thank you so much for joining, Juliette. Oh, you are most welcome. It's an absolute privilege to be here. It really is. Thank you. (laughs) Now, this is a bit different for this particular podcast because most of the listeners will be uh, used to hearing members of our church who have some kind of faith in God or Jesus Christ. And you're a bit of an outlier because that does not fit (laughs) you. You're not that person. No, I am absolutely not that person. I don't know if anyone's going to react to this. (laughs) No, um, I had your name recommended to me because you've spoken at BYU in the past, haven't you? I have indeed. Yes, that was a fabulous experience. I had such a good time there. I really did. In fact, I would probably say it is the best conference I've ever been to in my entire life. And I've been to a lot of conferences. (laughs) That's a big call. Oh, absolutely. No, it was it was a truly fabulous experience. I would I would absolutely do it again given the opportunity. Mm, And that conference brought together quite a number of different professionals, didn't it, from all over the world? Yeah, absolutely. So there was um, there were a number of academics um, like myself, but it also brought together um, many people with fundamental religious backgrounds. So it could be that they worked within religious communities or they were pastors and from a whole range of religions as well. Um, but I was probably the only atheist there. <laughs> I hope you didn't feel too uncomfortable, and I hope you feel that. <laughs> I did have the Bishop of Haiti praying for me at one particular point, but I was like, oh, honey, oh, that ship has long since sailed. <laughs> <laughs> he was fabulous, I have to say. Appreciated the uh, gesture. You, you can't fault us for trying. <laughs> 
No, it's um, it's really good to have someone else on the show today, actually, because I love gathering a number of different perspectives on on faith, on what it means to be, um, I guess, a modern believer. And so you're bringing in another perspective of maybe why that is still beneficial, but from your secular research. And so I'm really fascinated to hear kind of the, the insights that you've gained over the past couple of years and you yourself, what you think of, I guess, religious folk as a someone who doesn't believe. So really, I'm, I'm thrilled that you're here. <laughs> well, I hope it will give people of your faith and other faiths as well, maybe a slightly different perspective and um, I'm hoping it can have a, a, a way of changing the narrative that secular people have with regard to religion and believe me the irony does not escape me that I am this atheist individual and I'm actually promoting religion I find it I, I, I live in conflict in my life frankly it turns out <laughs> um, but I'm I, I, promoting religion from a couple of different perspectives, mainly from the legal perspective, because that's what I do. That of course. Law, makes me yep. happy. Um, but also, I think we're going to get onto some of the research thing that I'm going to be talking about as well that gives a slightly different sociological perspective as well. So, yeah, so mm. I'm hoping that this will, you know, ease the, ease the gap between the secular and, and the religious in some way. Yeah, me too. Before we get into the, the hard-hitting research, I just would love to know a little bit more about you personally because you have not a Kiwi accent. You have a British accent. So no, how did you find yourself I, in New Zealand? I do have this English accent. It, it really has stayed with me. So I've been in New Zealand hmm, 11, 12 years, something like that. I got offered a great job basically in New Zealand in, in the role that I'm at, at at the moment, um, doctor in law. And so I... It was, it was a huge undertaking to come over here. I'd never been to New Zealand. Um, I'd watched Lord of the Rings, and I don't think that counts. Very grounded in reality, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so I came over here, and it's it has absolutely changed my life coming over here, as you might imagine. Culture is fundamentally different, even as turns out there's an awful lot of English people over here. Never knew that, but there we go. I live kind of out in the middle of nowhere, uh, which I'm very happy about. I've got my two horses. Um, I've got my four cats. Apparently, I'm a crazy cat lady. I've got my chooks. <laughs> um, and then I do my academia. So I have an all-rounded, fabulous life. Yes. It sounds idyllic. <laughs> it is. It really is. <laughs> I love it. So you do a lot of work with charity law and that yeah. has a big impact on how religions are able to carry out their day-to-day -day function. I suppose as a body of people who believe in the spiritual side of life, we obviously find that there's a benefit from that. You know, it enriches our lives personally, but that doesn't always translate to um, people who don't believe. What is often depicted in the media is that negativity, and we rarely see a positive story about um, a religious body. And so a lot of what you've been doing is looking at some of the financial tangible benefits um, and sociological benefits of religion in societies in general. So I'd love to get a bit of an overview. How did you get into this and what kind of research have you been digging down into? Sure. So um, I literally fell into doing uh, research on religion. 
I specialise generally in um, charity law, charitable trusts, trust law, and sitting within, I'm about to give you a, a lecture now, so please forgive me. Um, within charity law sits this particular um, legal principle called the advancement of religion, and it's one of the few um, heads of charity that is recognised as uh, legally charitable. So if you are, say, for instance, a church or a religious body, you must demonstrate that you advance religion in some way in order to be registered as a charity. Now, that all sounds terribly straightforward. It is not. Um, unfortunately, as with majority of types of law that we have here in New Zealand and the same as uh, England, it is complex. So you, A, you have to work out whether or not it's a religion, then you have to work out whether it's advanced. And the more I was researching on this particular head of charity, the more complex I realised it was. And it just began to draw me into it. It was like going down a rabbit hole. And I, I felt like Alice in Wonderland, sort of falling down that rabbit hole and, and just being uh, entrenched into this, into this wonderland of religion, where I have literally no vested interest. Um, but I was looking at the legalities of it. So that's how I got into it. And I spend most of my life writing about charity law and quite a lot of it about religion uh, within charity law and justifying it from a legal perspective, but always bearing in mind that beneath that is the reality that advancement of religion has its basis in what humans require, need, want, with regard to our morality as well. Although many would argue against that particular point, obviously. <laughs> yeah, but that, that fundamental notion that you're entitled to um, pursue beliefs and lifestyles that are intrinsic to you know, the very nature of what it means to be human, like allowing people to to explore that part of themselves. Yes, and that is protected by law as, as it should be. Um, I mean, so the vast majority of humans in this world have some kind of religious belief. And so whilst many of us atheists will raise an eyebrow and go, why? Um, it is an acknowledged fact that whilst many would believe that the world is becoming more secular, I don't necessarily think that's true. I think as more challenges arise in the world, and boy, have we had challenging, challenging existence for at least the last couple of years, the more people reach out to spiritual matters, religious matters, in order to provide them with some sort of comfort. And I'm not saying everybody needs to do that. Of course not. But it is the way in which humans are invariably designed. Mm. And you know, there's an awful lot of evolutionary research out there that suggests we are literally designed to be religious creatures. I mean, that's a, that's I mean even if you're not religious, <laughs> people generally say, oh, well, everything happens for a reason. You know, we want to find meaning within yes. things that occur, right? Yeah, and, and that's absolutely true. Humans can't necessarily believe that we just have this one purpose on life just to exist on the planet and do our own stuff that there is a reason some somewhere somehow for it and you know there are religion is weaved into our lives when we don't even know about it you know most of our big institutions in australia new zealand the uk are based on religion well, i guess you could say you know like there's a lot of um religious hospitals or a lot of our schools obviously the private schools are somewhat church based yeah and it's very interesting that people who choose to send their children to private schools that are invariably religious based say for instance roman catholic um are not necessarily that religious themselves that they have to demonstrate it in some way um but they prefer to send their children 
to those particular schools. And there's fascinating research out there that shows that religious charities are some of the most trusted in the world, even though the charity sector is not necessarily that trusted in many ways. Religious charities are, even if you are not religious. Mm. And more people overall give to religious charities than they do to other charities. You know, there's an awful lot of um, work out there that refers to this um, framework of um, that encourages people, secular and non-secular, to give to religious charities. It's got three elements. You've got religious social capital, religious content and religious cultural power. They all sit in this framework operating together that makes religious charities probably more successful in getting aid to various individuals, communities, etc., than any other charities. And it is quite phenomenal. And there there have been calls to remove the advancement of religion from the charity law framework. Now this this happened in Victoria, in Australia. Oh yes it did. There was a bill that was submitted to the Victorian Parliament to remove advancement of religion and it was popular, I can tell you. There was an awful lot of support for it. The advancement of religion is the least popular charitable purpose because of all the issues that surround <laughs> religions. Right, but the easiest way to impact the the daily operations of religious bodies because it, it's not that constitutionally entrenched right. Correct, yes. In New Zealand, similar to many other common law countries, um, there are religious protections or laws that protect religion fundamentally. So, for instance, in New Zealand, we've got the Bill of Rights Act 1990, um, where under Section 13, everyone has the right to freedom of thought, conscience, religion, etc. Um, we've also got the Human Rights Act, um, Section 21, which protects religious belief, ethical belief. So you can have a religious belief or not a religious belief. So those are protected at law. Those are grounded in uh, fundamental human rights. Those are not going to change. But charity law, that is not entrenched in the Constitution. There is no treaty that our countries have signed to say we will continue to entrench that law. So that could be changed by a law change. Yeah. And that is what people quite often want to happen. What was the um, the rationale behind it? <laughs> yeah, you see, this is the interesting thing, is that people don't necessarily express that clearly what it is that they don't like about religions. Quite often, what we can gather from it is that people are angry about the tax relief that every charity gets when they're registered as a charity. There are an awful lot of um, financial benefits to that. And religious charities obviously get the same as any other type of charity. They get those pecuniary benefits. And people are very upset that it seems like a state is supporting an organisation, morally supporting an organisation, that there is no way of proving what they believe in is true. Mm. So with the best will in the world, it doesn't matter what you tell me, Maddie, you cannot prove to me that your God or Jesus exists or has ever existed. Mm. You can only work on the basis that it is what you believe in, clearly because that's what religion is about. It is just based on belief. So is it that and, separation mm. between church and state that people really, they want to keep divided and they feel that the tax benefits undermine that? 
yes, of course. And, um, you know, there are all sorts of other issues as well associated with religion that literally cannot be denied. Um, you know, all of the harm that religions have done over the centuries, the wars that they created, the ostracization of particular minority groups, you know, as a woman, I find some of the religious principles really, really quite damaging. And they still exist to this day, which mm. upsets me enormously. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the, it's very complex as to why people do not want religious charities to be registered as charities anymore. However, my research tells me that it would be probably a disaster if advancement of religion was removed from the charitable sector. Since this bill from the Victorian Parliament was rejected, the Humanist Society of uh, the UK has also been demanding it as well, that the UK remove advancement of religion. Um, one thing that also upsets secular individuals is that there is this thing called public benefit in um, charity law. So not only do you have to advance religion, but you have to show that your charity uh, provides sufficient public benefit. And with regard to religion, that public benefit in Australia and New Zealand, other countries as well, is presumed. So you can rebut that presumption of public benefit. Sorry, I've gone into lecture mode again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yes, you can rebut that public benefit, but it takes quite a lot for religion to rebut that public benefit. So a lot of religions are not popular. So the, the starting position is religions benefit society at law. Absolutely. That's, that's a legal that's right. interpretation. Yeah. Yes. One of the few ways in which you would rebut that presumption is if you did something that would be contrary to the laws of the country in question. Oh, that seems like quite a high threshold yes it is quite a high threshold i mean there were there have been some incidences where organizations have not achieved charitable status say for instance there was one example in new zealand the exodus ministry where the charity services rejected them because of the way in which they treated homosexuals and tried to convert them so they they approved of conversion therapy Mm. which is morally it's it's incredibly questionable but, you know, if talking as, as a woman, if a church denigrates women in some way or requires them to stay in their homes and, you know, just raise the family, that in itself would be not sufficient necessarily to rebut that presumption of public benefit. Mm. So you can see that that threshold as well it, it can be seen as difficult to um to sit in the moral compass of the general public. So there's a discussion um, a couple of days ago that I, that I saw on one of the news forums here of a church called Destiny Church here in New Zealand, which is an evangelical, I think it's an evangelical church, um, which has many challenging views and it is opposed to homosexuality, if I'm remembering correctly, and... Um, a number of people have, that is a registered charity and a number of people are demanding that Destiny Church be removed from the charitable sector. And just because they have negative views doesn't necessarily mean to say that they will not get the benefits of being a charity. Just public opinion is not sufficient to sway the law on that. So that means that there has to be another way 
I think, for people to understand what it is that religions do that are beneficial. And that's where my current research steps in, showing these secular benefits of religion. At least I think that that's what will be the outcome. Obviously, I can't predict it, but whatever happens as a result, I think it will actually change the conversation between the secular and the religious fundamentally. I know you're you kind of early stages, mm. but what are some of the the key insights that you're seeing so far? How are religions really benefiting yeah. societies? So just to give a wee bit of background to this particular research, it, it was formed one of my chapters of my PhD where I was looking at um, how we can justify from a legal perspective or socio-legal perspective the advancement of religion. And one of the chapters, which is recommended to me by my chief supervisor at the time, Sir Grant Hammond, God rest his soul, he suggested that I question, um, A, what would happen if we removed the advancement of religion, but also to look at what is religion worth financially? And I found uh, a whole bunch of research that had taken place in America, Canada, and Australia, where um, one um, amazing researcher he discovered, along with his daughter, that religious charities provided $1.2 trillion worth of social and economic value to America in just one year alone. That in was one in, to- year. in one year, <laughs> yes. And that was said to be a conservative estimate. And that was worth, that was in 2016, that was worth more than Amazon, Google, and Apple total, plus two other um, big oil and gas companies as well. Astonishing results. Astonishing. Canada, he did the same again. That was in 2020. And in Canada, the mid-range estimate of what religious charities were worth, 67 billion Canadian dollars. Obviously smaller because they've got a smaller community. Mm. Australia did similar, came up with similar results. And I went, nothing's happened like that in New Zealand. So my view was that actually we needed to do this in New Zealand as well. It's never been done before. No reports or studies like this man in America. That's right. There's people who've been working on the fringes of it, but not specifically this particular project. So I'm collaborating with Professor Frank Scrimgeour, who is the head of economics at um, Waikato Management School at University of Waikato. And he's a genius on economics. I can do the law. I can do the sociology of the law. But here's the math. <laughs> not me. Um, so I'm... I'm you know, I'm really, really thrilled that he's um, collaborating with me on this project. So um, I've currently got a research assistant going through data from the charity services, which is all public data of religious charities. Plus, we are also reaching out or have been reaching out to religious groups to fill out a questionnaire that does more than just give their public data. This gives way more detailed information on things like what pro bono work do they do? What services do they offer that um, have potentially a value that we can put on? So, for instance, do they have assets? We're not demanding any figures from them, but do they have assets that they can rent out or provide for free to communities? 
Right, like I think we talked about this, like um, church halls That's for weddings. Right. And Absolutely, and, yeah. or for um, children's groups, or for the elderly, you know, or to assist those in troubled times, you know, that may have drug addiction issues or alcohol addiction issues, those sorts of things. And, you know, that nobody really thinks about. I spoke to one religious group, I'm not going to say them out loud because they may not want me to do that, but they talked about offering assistance with funerals when people in the community can't afford a funeral. Which are ignorantly expensive. They knew that they did that. And, you know, the, the last thing you need when you've lost your loved one is to plunge yourself into debt in order to 20 grand or something that's right yeah. so those are the sorts of things we want to be capturing we are now beginning to capture them and professor frank scrimgeour can be doing his magic with them um, once we've begun begun to get some more of that data and um work out really what religious charities are worth to the sector and i suspect what we will find out is that they are worth way more than anyone could possibly have conceived before not necessarily financially but as a social construct that without them society would be an awful lot poorer emotionally sociologically and economically So, and interestingly as well, some of the feedback that I've got from the religious groups, they've said, we didn't know we did some of this stuff. And, you know, that just kind of blew my mind that I was like, you need to be out there talking about this stuff more. And they're like, we do, but we're not really supposed to because our religion tells us that we have to hide our light under a bushel. I'm going, okay, well, that's done. (laughs) Very disrespectfully of me. Yeah, no, it's true. Look, I absolutely get that. I really do. Because, you know, if you give money to a charity um, to help people in need, whatever it is, and you shove that all over Facebook and said, I just gave $10 to assist a person in need, people go, seriously, we don't need to know that. I know. It's a bit annoying, isn't it? But there are ways and means of doing it. And I think the message has to change in some way. I don't know how you're going to do it, as a religion, uh, uh, and I can't tell you how to do that. But currently, all we see is the negative. And you know, I um, when I went to Utah to the BYU conference, I went to um, see this massive, massive warehouse. But it was where people, um, refugees, asylum seekers, were working, learning a trade, learning a skill, learning a new language, uh, being shown how to live within America and they were earning money at the same time doing out carrying out aid work and it literally blew my mind that this was just in one particular place in Utah and there were plenty of other similar operations carrying out with all of the aid work that they were doing that um, your particular church has undertaken and I've, I've talked about it ever since now you see if one atheist can talk about it, you know, contrary to my own views on religion, then imagine what a whole bunch of other atheists or um, agnostics might talk about if they saw similar. And 
Nobody said to me, oh, you shouldn't really be talking about that. You know, it sounds like it's very boastful. Nobody said that to me. Um, And it actually blew some of the minds of your fellow churchgoers when they also saw that work being undertaken. They went, I didn't know that happened. And I went, why don't you know? (laughs) I was very judgmental about it. (laughs) And they went, because we're not really supposed to talk about it. It's blowing our own track. And I went, no, it's absolutely not. You are showing the good that is being undertaken. You are showing Mm. humanity. And I think this is what it all boils down to, is we are all humans. And, you know, we should be helping each other. We actually get the warm fuzzies, whether we think we're earning a place in heaven or whether we're going to be burning in hell, whatever it might be. We all get the warm fuzzies from doing good for other people. Do you know what I mean? You know, if you go out and rescue an animal, you, you actually tell people about it. You you show on Facebook, look, I've rescued this puppy. Aren't I lovely? And people are like, oh, that's lovely. You've done a good thing. What is the difference between doing that and within your religion saying, this is what we can do if we all work together? I don't think it's that hard. But I think mm. there's still that barrier to be broken down. Yeah, no, it, it's very interesting because we um, obviously we have a practice of tithing, so we regularly donate ten percent of our income. That's right. It's something that we we just accept as a, I guess as a practice, which I'm not going to go. It's on. normal for you. Yeah, but it, it does yeah. feel a little bit strange to say. I suppose to to post about it or to I don't know tell my employer like oh actually by the way you know I'm not earning as much as everyone else because like <laughs> you know it's kind of like one of those things like how do you address it do you have any practical tips or <laughs> um, I think actually one of the most practical things you could do is normalize talking about what your religion does. So it may well be that there are other people listening to this podcast who are not part of your religion they're part of another religion for instance and as you normalize having this conversation as a religious person to share what it is that your religion promotes mm, rather than trying to shove down the, the the spiritual experience like i felt so warm and good I understand that that does not resonate with people no, who have no inclination of belief. It doesn't. So. And um, that's and that's when people just get switched off completely or quite right. often when you talk about yep. warm fuzzies like that. And I'm belittling it. I'm sorry. Um, the practicality side of things is often what will resonate. Um, and just showing humanity is, is what people understand more than anything. So you can actually say, look, our religion promotes um, world peace or assisting relieving poverty. And that's why I think it's so important for uh, for me to be part of this church or this religion, because that's a value close to my heart. Yeah. So those sorts of comments, it's not saying I gave $20,000 last year, get taken out of my wages. You know, that no, 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 nobody needs to hear that. But you can talk about why it's so important to you to be part of that religion because it um, grants you a method of ensuring that your own beliefs are seated in the common good in mm. some way. I liked how you compared earlier the notion of just talking about it with friends as if you talk about the hobbies of your kids. Mm. Absolutely. Why wouldn't you? You know, what are you, what are you doing this weekend? Oh, we're taking little Johnny to play or go off and play rugby or cricket or whatever. 
and other people go, oh, I'm actually going off to do some volunteer work. Oh, really? Where do you volunteer? Mm. You know, it's not unusual for people to do volunteer work. A friend of mine is doing um, volunteer work for the aged, and she's also volunteering adopting a puppy to help um, special needs children that will be trained to go on an, uh, as an assistance dog. And so those are completely normal. That's not the religious side of things. So if you were to say, I'm going off to teach at Sunday school, people might raise an eyebrow. You go, look, this is what we talk about in our Sunday school. And I go, huh, okay. Yes, you're going to be met with negativity initially. Of course you are. Um, I'm met with negativity all the time when I talk about uh, the advancement of religion. Oh, you should God. see what happens in my lectures. Blimey. <laughs> oh, my goodness, of course. University is a very liberal place. There's lots of ideas. <laughs> oh, yes. I, don't get me wrong. I do get some fundamentally criticised for it, you know, especially when I ta- start talking about Church of Jediism and whether or not that's a religion oh, course, and whether or not yeah. that's registered as a, mm-hmm. as a charity. Mm-hmm. No, it's not. What is it? The, the flying spaghetti plate monster? Like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> That's not a registered charity here. <laughs> but, you know, people have their own beliefs. And that's the interesting thing is that who are we to say whose belief is right That they and whose don't genuinely believe that, just as I Absolutely. genuinely believe what I do. Look, yeah. you can tell me that Jesus has existed and still exists in your heart. And I go, how is that different from believing in the ways of the Jedi? You, you literally can't criticize somebody else's religion because each of those religions cannot ever be proven. It is literally a belief system. So if one is wrong, they must all be wrong. And that's what the law looks at it as. There is no judgment in the law as to what is right or wrong. There are particular principles that will be applied in charity law as to whether or not something will be a religion, but it's a fairly broad construct, slightly different in the UK than it is in New Zealand and Australia as to whether or not you are a religion at charity law. But there is no judgment because at some point, every single religion was unpopular. And I think regardless of the results that I get from the statistics and all the data that's coming out of this research, because obviously I can't predict exactly what's going to happen, what's going to be the outcome. But what I do think is it's going to show a really valuable conversation with regard to what religious charities do. Yeah, so maybe we can dive into that just a little bit. I know you talked Mm. about the financial impact and that comes from donations. Mm. Um, What about some of the more sociological findings that you're kind of predicting at the moment that maybe it's hard to find the data on, but you mentioned pro bono work, like the types of roles that people go into as well in their their professions? Yeah, so um, I know that a number of lawyers provide free legal advice, legal opinions support their communities because their religion says that they should do that. Now, you know, from from a legal perspective, getting legal advice is expensive. Even if you manage to get some kind of legal assistance from the government, it's still very expensive. And people find themselves pushed away from obtaining good legal advice because they can't afford it. So you have individuals who are prepared to give up their time in order to assist members of their community. Now, that's just one minor example. If we imagine how much these individuals normally charge out their time, several hundred dollars an hour, generally, um, for free, for many, many hours. So those are the sorts of things that are of 
sociological support. Now, don't get me wrong, other non-religious lawyers also give their time as well. Yeah, there is, there is a strong pro bono <laughs> tradition within the legal profession. There is. But take, for instance, religious individuals who operate within prisons and hospitals. Mm, the chaplain services. That's right. Absolutely. Now, you can have that service for free. You know, if you ask for a chaplain to come and talk to you, to help you, even if you are not necessarily of a religious persuasion, there is a saying, what is it? There's no man is an atheist on the battlefield. Mm. And, um, you know, what we often find is people in their worst crises of their life suddenly go, please help me, help me God. And you're going, you don't have a religious belief. What are you doing? And, you know, to have somebody who will literally just sit and listen to you, no judgment, no question, regardless of their, their own faith, is is humanity at its finest. So those are the sorts of things that I think we can um, put, you know, and many people, many religious people are quite upset that we're going to be doing this. We're putting a financial value on that, an economic value on that. And they're like, you can't do that. That's offensive. Religion is about belief. It's about assisting people. It's, it, you are undermining what religion does. And I'm like, in this modern day world, unfortunately, money is. some of us say yes, <laughs> money matters. Money talks. It yeah. does, absolutely. I, I'm thinking that maybe in the US as well, it's less relevant to perhaps New Zealand and Australia where we have, you know, a quite good healthcare. But, um, mm. you know, where the costs of medical bills <sighs> over there are extortionate. Oh, horrifying, yes. Pro bono medical work must be kind of having the same effect over there as well. Yeah, absolutely. Just to find somebody who will assist you in your greatest hour of need. And quite often it comes from the religious communities. Mm. Religious communities are the ones that are the most effective overall from what I can see from my research are providing large scale humanitarian relief. If you look at any world disasters, who are the first charities that go in there? It will be the religious charities. Um, because of this framework that I talked about earlier, you know, you've got your social capital, religious capital and religious content that all sit together, that operate together, that enable the groundwork to go in to these places and even secular individuals will give to those charities because it makes us feel like we're doing something. So if we feel completely overwhelmed by an appalling earthquake that has occurred in like Haiti or the Philippines where hundreds of people have died, and we're sat there going, we can't do anything, we're too far away. What we can do is give some money or some blankets or some food to World Vision, who is out there right now on the ground, um, makes us feel better. Do you see what yeah, I mean? Yeah, I do. So there's, there, it seems like there's there are direct financial tangible uh, results that you're going to be able to find, and then there's a yes. whole range of variables. That <laughs> yes, absolutely. So my research is not just going to be data. It's going to be underpinned with this narrative of justification of law, there's going to be the narrative of the data, but there's also going to be the narrative of the social constructs that underpin everything that goes beneath religion and how it sits within the constructs of humanity and communities themselves. Let's say your research completely fails and no one listens to the great work that you're doing. <laughs> 
I won't, I won't frame it like that. But like, let's say no one ever um, moving forward appreciates the value of religion. What are we at risk of losing if governments and um, you know legislation and frameworks change? That's a really good question to ask. And I think what we can say is that um, absolutely we will lose many religious charities because they won't be able to function so well because they don't they, they would have to be paying out for their tax obligations etc cetera, etc cetera. that has the knock-on effect on what services can they offer so you've got that immediate thing the next issue i think with that or the next problem that would then arise is that you will then risk excuse the pun here actually now i'm quite proud of it is you're then risk demonizing um religious communities quite often religious communities and minority communities mm-hmm. And because if they're no longer supportive, those communities are no longer underpinned by law, you are then saying that the government has no place for these particular communities. They're no longer supported by the government. And if that is the case, the rest of communities, as unfortunately humans tend to do, is they tend to go, why is that? They don't belong here. They don't deserve to be here. And that threatens um many many individuals who are already on the on the cusp of feeling threatened in many regards anyway because of their religious beliefs and we can see it um we've seen it in the jewish communities we've seen it in the muslim communities who are constantly threatened by other viewpoints because they don't fully understand what those religions are about Mm. you know people have died as a result of that we know that in new zealand where we had the terrorist attack on the islamic communities um so I think that actually that's a grave consequence that we have to think about really, really carefully. That's huge. I hadn't considered that. I'd, I'd thought about the immediate financial impact and maybe governments yeah. trying to fill the gap of religions. <laughs> governments could never <laughs> fill that gap. That would be billions of dollars they would have to find. Oh, Who's going to do billions that? Billions of dollars and then also campaigning. Or other organisations campaigning for donations, which religions seem to attract naturally. Yes. And the, the research suggests that those religious charities don't exist. People won't automatically give those dollars to somebody else, to another non-religious charity. They chose a religious charity very deliberately. Religious charities have this kind of magic about them in many ways, which means that people are drawn in to trust them, to know that they're going to go and do good in the community. Mm. For the most part, religious charities do tend to receive more overall in a lot of countries than non-religious charities. So if we remove them, other charities would not necessarily benefit as a result. Right. And then on top of that, the social impact of some of those minority religions. Yeah. Absolutely. It would be vast. Because I think what non-religious people forget is that a religion is not just a belief. It's quite often an identity, a community, a culture, a way of life. And to take that away or to threaten a culture is going to be a crisis for humanity. In many ways. It's been really good to hear some of your research. I'm so excited to see, just watch the outcome. I'm, if, you, if you publish I anything, true. I will read it. <laughs> <laughs> Bless you. Yeah, so I am really looking forward to this research coming out. Obviously, I'm doing other research at the same time. But yeah, this is, this is something that is very different for me and very different for this country as well. 
And um, yeah, it, it's gonna it's gonna be quite something, I think, when, when it all comes together. Well, maybe we'll have to have you back on as a part two, and you can give us a full rundown. <laughs> <laughs> that would be lovely. <laughs> Well, yeah, the title of this podcast is Choosing Faith. Um, and and I, I ask people generally about what the notion of choosing a religious lifestyle means to them. Obviously, that's not applicable to you. So. <laughs> but I'm going to change the premise of this question a little bit and say, why should governments retain the legal protections that let their citizens choose a life of faith? Yeah. So it's a really multifaceted answer. It comes back to this construct of humanity having freedom to do what enables them to live a life that fulfills them in some regard. And humans can do that in a whole bunch of ways. I've got my horses and I'm very satisfied with that and my chicks, et cetera, et cetera. And my cats, not so much. They're idiots. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but for the majority of humans in the world, that involves faith of some sort, spiritual, religious, whatever it might be. To take that away from humans means that many people would be lost, either through their identity, their community, their way of living, their everyday lives. And it would be a very uncomfortable position for them to be in. Historically speaking, our societies have been created for the most part on religion. And we can't deny that. And I think it would be insulting to the creation of those societies to say religion no longer has a place because it still does have a place in so many things that we do. Religion is woven into our lives, whether we like it or want it or not. And because of that, I think we have a duty and an obligation to ensure that humans can live their lives as freely as we possibly can. I know there's a whole bunch of restrictions on top of that. There's all sorts of conditions do that. We don't truly live free, free lives, but as best we possibly can. And I think the way in which we do that is to allow as much religious freedom as we possibly can as well to enable humans to exist in their best lives. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode. I truly enjoyed my conversation with Juliet. Her perspective as one who has no religious belief whatsoever was enlightening and made me realize that there's more I can do to highlight the good that religious groups really do offer. This is the final episode before the Christmas break, so I wish everyone a wonderful Christmas holiday and I'll be back with more Choosing Faith interviews in January. Merry Christmas. Talk soon.